computer. This is data. I'm an android. I'm a basketball. I was processing all of the information. Processing. One of those idiots who believe in analytics. Rangers pick basketball. Analytics was crap. Does not compute. Just because you got good stats doesn't mean you're a good team. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Lakers Exceptionalism Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I am your host for, th- for today, Tim. You know me as Cranjus McBasketball on Twitter. And today, we are digging back into the mailbag to go over more questions on the Lakers offense. This is part two of hopefully just two parts, but we'll see. Uh, jumping right into it. Even if the Lakers show zero improvement in adjusting to post-up help, post-up double teams, do you think the addition of more ball handling and shooting can help alleviate the problem and bring it to an adequate level? For some background, the Lakers sucked at this this past season. And I say that having logged like 60 games worth of post-ups and looking at All right, AD posted up, he got a true 1v1, this is what happened. Or AD posted up, help came, it came from the baseline, or it came from the guy guarding the the offensive wing player on his side of the court. Like, where did the help come from? What kind of help was it? And then if there was that extra help coming, what did the Lakers do about it? Did, Did they just let AD get double teamed and he tried to shoot over it? Did you just kick it out? Or did they actually try to counter it in some sort of way? Because if you if you put two guys on one player, somebody's open <laughs> and a lot of times when you skip it out if you, you throw that skip pass to an open player on the weak side the defense can just recover they have time to you know rotate and get back and get a hat on a hat and not end up giving up an open shot when you counter it well you're going to dominate and when the lakers countered post up help post up help well this past season they dominated they were much better countering help than they were just letting AD or Trez or LeBron or any of those guys just go 1v1. And this was the case for everybody. For every single player. And the efficiencies were different, but for every single player. Them going 1v1 was was solid. It was good for, for the guys who were the true post players. When they were double teamed and nothing happened, it wasn't good. Whether it was them forcing a shot or them kicking it out and somebody's taking a three, that wasn't working. On a large sample, this is, this is over 50, 60 games. This is into the playoffs. This is something that happened last playoffs. Like, this this was a problem. And when the Lakers did counter, which wasn't often, sometimes they would do things that made no sense. <laughs> like, if the help is coming from the weak side and you try to counter that by cutting the strong side guard into, like, a heap of bodies, that's not helpful. <laughs> and that didn't work. That worked even less. Because then we had AD or Braun trying to pass to these cutters, to these guys who are cutting into the defense and turning the ball over and the other team was getting run out. So that was not effective at all. And, but when the team did counter and countered correctly, they were getting way more wide open threes than just AD kicking the ball out. Like, like the openness was better. The shot quality was better. And the results were better. Or they were getting layups, dunks at the rim. And it didn't always have to be like a pin and flare screen. I know I really enjoy those. I love pointing them out. There were other ways to counter, other ways they did counter, but they didn't do it well. They didn't do it consistently. When they did it well, that influenced the behavior of the defense. We saw this in the Phoenix series. Games two and three, the Lakers countered better. And because of that, the Suns stopped sending extra help. 
And because of that, the post players, 1v1 in the post, were cooking. But then the Lakers stopped. <laughs> they, 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 they stopped countering. And for the rest of the series, it was really bad. And uh, the defense brought extra help, and the Lakers didn't try to counter it. And it was like a perfect example of what happens when you just let yourself be outmaneuvered tactically, even when you have strong players. So that is, that's the starting point. Looking forward to this season, I think shooting's the key piece here. Last year, AD again, faced a double team, kick it out, and it would go to a guy who isn't great at either attacking a closeout, but also isn't really, a, I'll say, a hard three-point shot maker. He's not that dead-eye shooter. The Lakers had guys who could take and make easy threes. Like, go kick it out to Marcus Gasol. If he's wide open, he will take the shot, and he will make the shot really well. Like, he, he was a really good three-point shot maker. Same thing with Alex Caruso. But they're not attempting the hard shots. If there's, like, a semi-contested situation, they're not trying to shoot it. And they're also not dudes that you're like, yeah, I'm going to go have Marcus Gasol go attack a closeout. AC is going to go attack a closeout, read the defense, kick it out again. Like, it wasn't that personnel. This year, the shooting is better. So they'll make some of those harder shots and they'll take some of those harder shots that weren't being taken last season. But then also, if you're closing out hard, you're closing out poorly, either of those, we have dudes with Kendrick Nunn, Malik Monk, some of these guys, Kempe's more, they'll attack your closeout and go do something at the rim or go read read the guy rotating over them just over to stop them at the rim and then go dump it off to Dwight or AD or whoever. So those two elements are much better or they should be much better this year, and in a way where you can kind of get away with being poor tactically. So the Lakers, I don't know, and I'm not sure I'm expecting them to suddenly get better at this area they've been poor at since the 2019-2020 postseason, but I think they're better set up to succeed more often, even with not great process, just because the talent now allows them to get away with it more often. Next question what do you guys think will be the average points, rebounds, assists for our new big three? I had a couple of people ask me about this. We're going to save this one. We're going to save this for our predictions pod that we will do during the preseason. Once I get a sense for like, during, after a couple of preseason games, we're going to get some idea, more more media sessions. What will the rotation look like? What Who's playing where? Whether 80 is playing five or four and for how much time that's going to matter. A lot of these variables matter and I don't want to put out a prediction in early September that a couple weeks from now I know is going to be old info and we can do better with. So we're going to wait on that one. But good question. We will answer this, just not today. Next question. If the Lakers decided to run the seven seconds or less offense, how many points do you think they would average? A lot. <laughs> um, it'd probably be like 120 a game or something dumb. Um, I, I don't think this team has quite the pick and roll game for something like that. Like, that team, it was like really quick pick and roll, really quick pick and pop. We're going to you know throw it up, pass ahead. Somebody's going to attack along the sideline. Like a lot of those actions, I'm not sure. Like it's a partial fit with this roster. I'd feel better about it if Russell Westbrook were like, I don't know, pick any other dynamic pick and roll ball handler that has, has more of a pull-up shot in a way where it would open up roles more often. Like if, if you've got... Russell Westbrook out and CJ McCollum in or something like that. Yeah, this would work really well. Um, even without Russ being a great fit for it, I think with LeBron and AD, like I like 
a lot of what this roster does and how it would fit with that. I don't think they're going to do that. But uh, I think some of the downside here is, like, this is an old roster. Uh, they do have some depth. So so maybe you're just playing everybody and, and shortening minutes a bit and giving guys rest or, like, shortening stints of minutes. But, uh, yeah, it, I think it'd be fun if they were to run that style of offense. Next question, unfortunately, is also about a type of offense. How many games would you last? How many games would I last if they ran the triangle offense the whole season? Oh, my God. Probably less than one I hate so for any new listeners, the triangle offense is something I, growing up as a basketball player, idolized because it worked. It was, you know, Kobe's teams used it, MJ's teams used it. Like, yeah, it had to be the best. Like, that, that's my team. That's my guy using this stuff. Uh, and then I like learned more about it and got more into the X's and O's of the game. And I realized that the triangle offense is in 80% of what it does, getting the ball to an isolation score and getting guys out of the way, which is okay, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's, there's a, not a lot of action happening, there's some movement, there's some motion, but there wasn't a lot of purposeful motion that creates scoring opportunities. You weren't ever going to run a, tri- run the triangle offense and be getting a bunch of like off-screen shooter attempts or like open layups and dunks from guys just by the nature of the offense itself, you were only, like, it was, what what an offensive scheme is supposed to do is elevate the talent and put guys into the right roles, those roles be a good fit, and and be able to generate high-quality looks due to the actions created, like, give you an advantage to work with. The triangle offense put guys in roles, and there was, a, I mean, in reality, there was a lot of like, hey, everybody's going to handle the ball. So for a lot of teams, for most teams, that's not a great fit. Uh, and it's not giving anybody an advantage. It's, you know, you know where everybody's standing, which you should know anyway. And you need to go create the advantage. So if you have elite post scoring, elite perimeter isolation scoring, yeah, it can work. But if you have elite post scoring and elite perimeter isolation scoring, I'd say there are better offenses that you can run to optimize that. And and so for that reason, I mean, there's a reason nobody runs the triangle. Uh, like there might be a college team here or there, some high school teams. Like it's not something people really use at like the heart of what it truly is. You will see people, you know, swear left and right that the triangle influenced things. And yeah, yeah, it could have. Like split cuts, split cuts are great. I love split cuts. Include me some split cuts in, in whatever, whatever offense the Lakers are running. But if you're running the triangle offense, split cuts happen every now and then. <laughs> and and that's not great. Uh, the pinch post action where a player is getting the ball at the elbow and, and there's guys moving around them. Great. I like it. But that's a very small part of the triangle offense. And in most instances was more just guys moving around rather than purposeful, you know, using a screen and, and creating open shots. So, it's not a way to elevate your talent. It's a way to kind of get guys out of the way and try to let your best players cook if you have that elite isolation scoring. But even then, there are better ways to utilize players. And it, it doesn't have the same kind of impact when you can help and and rotate the way that modern defenses help and rotate. So not, not a good fit. I would not last very long. Next question. What are some differences we'll see on offense compared to the past two seasons? If you could pick a playbook to use for the Lakers team in 2K, what would you recommend? I haven't purchased 2K. I don't know if I, I'm assuming 2K. Yeah, 2K is out, right? 
I don't I don't know if 2K's out. I haven't really I mean I bought 2K this past year and I played I think one game and then I never touched it again. For me it's it's hard to play knowing that the ratings and the tendencies aren't where they need to be. Uh, there's room for opportunity. I mean, there's so many players to keep track of. It's it's really, really hard to do manually, but they, they do the best they can. And it's just, it's not, I, I don't know. I'm too frustrated with that sort of stuff to, to really, really get into it. Uh, but I, I mean, I've enjoyed 2K in the past. I helped out and, and put together 20 of the 30 playbooks for NBA 2K18. Uh, did some consulting work there. I got paid well during one summer. And that year I purchased that game and I was like 50 and two or 50 and one or something playing online. Cause I just knew all the best plays. I put together this elite playbook and it was, it was fantastic. I don't have those recommendations right now. If I do end up getting the game, I play it a little bit. I'll, I'll go find some of those good plays and I'll let you know, but right now, no idea, but I can answer how I think this team offensively might compare with teams the past two seasons. And really I think we're going to see a lot of the same stuff. I think we're going to see similar looks, similar actions. It's going to be the same kind of mostly vanilla set plays with some single action sets, leaning into the stars you have, trying to have tertiary shooters and finishers around them. But like instead of KCP or Alex Caruso setting a screen for LeBron and and going into the short roll and then needing to play make You could do that with Russell Westbrook this year. That's a significant upgrade. Instead of KCP or like Danny Green and ghost screens where they're they're setting a ball screen and slipping it into a pop, we could see that with Wayne Ellington this year, who is like the best in the biz at that. Instead of kickouts from double teams in the post going to like Alex Caruso or Markeith Morris or or some of those guys, we're going to see like Kendrick Nunn and Wayne Ellington and Carmelo Anthony, like dudes that are going to fire the ball and and knock down some shots. And then instead of when LeBron sits, we're out there with like Alex Caruso pick and rolls, you're going to have some Russ pick and rolls or maybe some Kendrick Nunn pick and rolls. So like, even if you run the same playbook, same offense, you have a better personnel to be more effective at those same things. So there will be changes. There will be new plays that we see the team run. Overall, I don't expect a huge stylistic change once we get into the half-court offense because for two reasons. One, because it's it's hard to expect coaches to just you know go out and, and learn a whole new thing and scrap everything they've been using for years and, and just pick up new stuff. Some coaches are successful because what they do has worked, and then they, they kind of dig into that. Some coaches are successful because they're constantly innovating. I've had the opportunity to work around and and be on staffs for both. (laughs) And I'll tell you, the one I like way more often is the innovator. Um, But both exist and both can be successful. I I wouldn't say they're both optimal, but I would expect this team to run a lot of the same stuff, be around the same quality level when it comes to their tactical game, countering, being double teamed, and and post-ups, seeing extra help, and drives, facing stunts, and all that, that sort of stuff. They're going to lean on their star power and just surrounding with finishing and shooting. And just, I mean, they have a better roster to do what they've tried to do the past two years. And, and so that's a reason to just kind of expect the same sort of stuff moving forward. So it's not necessarily bad. If anything, it's, it's I think, a good sign that we can, ex- if Frank Vogel continues being Frank Vogel, we can expect it to be more effective because the roster is a better fit for it now. All right, we're going to take a quick 
commercial break and then be right back with you. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, next question. Do you agree that one of the best ways for the Lakers to mitigate Russ's issues as an off-ball player during his minutes with LeBron is to make Russ and Braun's screening actions a frequent part of the playbook, especially come playoff time? Whether that be Braun being the screener and rolling or popping in empty side pick and rolls. And he says Caruso was frequently given straight line drives with this action despite not being a pull-up threat because of Braun's gravity. Or with Russ as the screener for LeBron attacking in 4v3 situations out of the short roll? Yes. <laughs> like, yes, this exactly. This is, I'm with you. This is exactly how I want to see this work. I, I think if we're trying to think of ways, and, and I'll save this for its own podcast, there are ways to work around Russ's off ball gravity or, or THT or other guys' off ball gravity issues. There are. I mean, there are options. Like, stick them in the dunker spot is one I've seen thrown around a bunch. It's not quite the, the best way get, to get the most out of Russell Westbrook. These examples are ways to, you know, leverage him, leverage his skill set as a pick-and-roll ball handler or as a uh, short-roll playmaker kind of guy. And in both instances, work they should work really well. So I'm excited to see both of these things. Braun, Russ, ball screens. You know, roll the dice. Let me know who the, the the ball handler is. Both should work, and so I'm excited to see how that plays out. I have other ideas. I've written some of them down. I I am tempted to share them. I'm not going to share them. I will save it for its own pod because it deserves that kind of attention. But there are other routes to approach this complex issue that is making the most of the three stars you have with them on the court at the same time without really losing value. Because if you're not really able to make the most out of all three of them out there at the same time, like maybe just focus more on staggering them. Don't really worry as much about the minutes of them playing together other than the very beginning and the very end of games. But, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Next question. 
how do the Lakers overcome the lack of outside shooting from the probable starting lineup? Well, that makes me worry about your probable starting lineup. I'm assuming that means Russ, Braun, AD with like Dwight Howard, and then pick a shooting guard. Uh, Who's who's the worst shooter of the bunch? I I guess maybe, I I don't know. They've all had up and down shooting situations, except for Wayne Ellington. We'll, We'll just say Kendrick Dunn. With that lineup, you do have spacing challenges with three of the five guys there. If you are running a lineup like that, which I don't think you should all that often. Uh, man. So you want AD in the actions with the other guy, with Dwight. You want him either screening off ball or in the dunker spot. If he's in the if his, his, he's in the dunker spot, that at least means if his man's going to help on a drive or post up or something, he's in a great position to really quickly just get a lob or, or get a dump off and finish strong. Andre Drummond had plenty of those opportunities this past season and did not finish well, and that really took away from the fact that, like, hey, if you're going to take away the primary attack, we're going to get you with that secondary attack. It's very crowded. It makes it hard, but we have the caliber of playmakers that I think you can make it work. It's not ideal. I don't like it. I would prefer that there just isn't help defense there, Um, but with Dwight, you have an upgrade from Drummond. Same thing, if you you get DeAndre Jordan, you have an upgrade from Drummond in that respect. You have an upgrade from Montrezl Harrell in that, like, these are bigger guys that are going to be able to get more opportunities. Um, so that is is one route to go. I will say Russell Westbrook's off-ball shooting isn't awful. There will be times where he's left alone, but it's it's not quite like a play-after-play thing in the regular season that's going to kill you. In the playoffs, it, it can be, actually. And it'll be worse than what the Lakers have seen with, with guys these past couple seasons. If so, there are routes to approach that. Again, hearkening back to my last answer, we're going to do a whole pot on this. But there are definitely options. The other thing I don't like about this is like AD probably ends up being more of a jump shooter in a lineup like that. If if like you're not gonna have him posting up and a guy in the dunker spot at the same time, probably all that much all that much. You're gonna have one of them in one of those two interior positions and then the other one outside. And because Dwight can't shoot, it's gonna be AD standing in the corner. And that is not the best way to use Anthony Davis. One of the reasons, I mean, one big reason I like starting Gasol over Dwight with this group is when those three stars are out there, throw a spacer in at center instead of Dwight, and you still have a strong finisher. You still have AD. You don't need two strong finishers. You've got a strong finisher, and you clear the the floor up much better and have Mark as a spacing guy who, you know, is also somebody that can pick and pop with Russ, which is great. He's also somebody who, if you kick it out to him, and there isn't an open three, he can go and execute a dribble handoff, which is great. Or he can go, you know, throw the ball to him at the top of the key, and then you've got some off-screen or cutting action uh, along each wing. Like, I see a lot of positives there if the Lakers lean into that, which part of the issue with Gasol this past season, COVID aside with him, was offensively, there were things he could do that the the Lakers weren't really leaning into as much. It was kind of like the the post-countering Countering post help, like they did it sometimes, but they probably needed to do it a little bit more. And when they did it more, it worked well. So the value he provides is partially dictated by what the staff is asking him to do and how often they're asking him to do it. So that's something where even if they're not, he's still a spacer, and I think that provides value. If if he is cut or something or traded or retires, and then the team signs Boogie, same idea here. You've got a spacer and you clear space for for the other players like LeBron 
and Russell Westbrook, who like to get to the rim, to get to the rim. Uh, you clear space for AD to play more inside. So it just makes everybody better. Not Even if, if Gasol or Boogie or whoever is a less talented player offensively, just by the nature of the fit. It, this is this is really where the skill sets molding together really matters. All right, what is the next question? What are the plays we're running when LeBron, AD, and Russ are on the floor with a center? So again... No. <laughs> uh, with Gasol, we covered the Gasol stuff. you got those dribble handoffs. you got the him at the top of the key playmaking. With the White or JaVale out there, I mean, same same stuff. If instead of having one of them be in the action and the other one be in a dunker spot, what you could do is run double ball screens or twin ball screens, either two guys on the same side or one guy on each side of the on ball uh, of the of the on ball defender, that is a way to draw out those big men from the paint, and is a way we might get to see some LeBron attacking downhill or Russ attacking downhill. Like that is that would be one primary thing I'd take a look at doing. Uh, running some horn sets where they're both at elbows, that flows really easily into a bunch of different actions and is a way to space the floor in certain ways and, and create some double gaps for drives along the wings. Um, I'll have to diagram some stuff up and, and show you what some plays could look like. Once we get to preseason, we're going to get some sense for what the team might be looking at using. Uh, I will try not to overreact, but I, I will overreact. And I'll say, hey, I love this play. I, it looks like their playbook's going to be great this year because that seems to happen every year. <laughs> um, we'll see what happens. All right, next question. If Mark isn't back, would you rather see DeAndre Jordan or DeMarcus Cousins join the team? And with Russ coming on the squad, how much point guard do you see Braun running this year? So I still think LeBron James is going to run a lot of, like he's going to be an initiator a lot. He's going to run a lot of ball screens. I don't think that's going away. I think the old man version of LeBron is him more as an elbow facilitator or as a post player facilitator and score those are things we're probably going to see more of uh, with Russ coming in and with LeBron aging it's going to be hard to tell exactly when that flip is going to be switched and if that flip is switched or if he just continues trying to be more of a guard version of himself offensively um, but with Russ coming in you're going to see more off ball LeBron and I don't think that's going to mean him running off of a bunch of like pin downs and staggered screens. It's going to be a lot of him spotting up or the team running sets for him to be cutting into a gap and catching the ball on the move and, and attacking the rim uh, or him running a secondary ball screen or th- little things like that or him being a screener. I think we're going to see a lot more often this year. On the DeAndre Jordan or Boogie piece, I'd rather see Boogie again just because adding a third strong finishing center offensively doesn't really it doesn't really move the needle for me like you you three is too many you should be able to get away with two between AD and Dwight having a strong finish out there on the court at all times and then with Boogie you've got a floor spacer so it, that again helps Russ with the ball screens it helps teach T it helps when when you've got Russ T tier AD out there in different combos having a non-shooting center along with them makes for a troublesome spacing situation. Uh, I just want to have that pitch to be able to throw 
with with the spacer. And he provides a lot of what Gasol does from a playmaking standpoint, so that's helpful. Uh, I just, I don't know. I see Boogie as being that guy that makes more sense. Because um, once you get to the playoffs, he, he or DeAndre Jordan probably won't play as much. You're probably going to see a two-center rotation with AD playing center just about all the time. Uh, and I think that's fine. I think that works. Now, if either of the two guys plays well, you can have him in the playoff rotation. That's good, too. So, I don't know. Yeah, boogie. I'm going to say boogie. Next question. What are the best lineups to maximize this team's offensive potential? We covered the non-LeBron ones on a recent pod, uh, so go check that out. I'm really excited about a lot of what that could look like. The ones with LeBron should have a finisher. We'll say AD or Dwight or DeAndre Jordan, if he signed, and then spacing around them, and then maybe a secondary creator with with a Ross or a Nun or a Monk. Any, like... there's so many different combos that can make sense. It really comes down to whose shot is falling and how is the team trying to use guys? What sets are they using? What actions are they using? But I don't have like definitive concrete answers because there's so many combos that make a lot of sense. I think you can put out a lot of scary lineups that have like LeBron, AD, Russ, Nunn, and like Ariza or... Ellington or Mello. Like, there are a lot of different groups that offensively can put out some really potent performances. Next question. How likely is it that Malik Monk gets meaningful runs with Russell Westbrook, LeBron, and AD at the four and five, respectively? Also, who would be best? Who would be the best three? Who would be the best small forward in a lineup like that to reconcile the defensive liability? So He'd make sense offensively as a shooter, as would uh, Kendrick Nunn, Wayne Ellington, who are each better chasers defensively at that small, or I'm sorry, the shooting guard position. So he's going to get a shot. Like, this is the thing with with Monk. If he, unless he, like, stinks at defense, and Frank Vogel seeing it, and other guys are hitting their shots, and he's just like, I don't need to play this guy, he's going to get a shot. He will get a shot at some point this season, even if, like, he's not playing all that well. Like, the season's long enough, he's going to get a chance. How much of a chance will depend on his defense and depend on his three-point shooting relative to some other guys' three-point shooting. The fact that the Lakers have other three-point shooting options, or it appears so right now, that defensively look better means that he's going to probably not going to be the first or second pitch that the team throws. Um, So there's a path for meaningful minutes, but it really is going to depend on his defense and then the collective three-point shooting of everyone. If you do have him out there, we've got Russ at the point of attack. Monk is a chaser, which, again, is not a good spot for him. Uh, Braun is, we'll say, a perimeter big at your power forward. AD as a mobile big as your center. Gosh. I'd like Ariza as a small forward helper who would just be a good rotator and put out a lot of fires uh, from the backcourt getting beat, potentially, and rotate well, having some switchability. I, I think Ariza would be who I'd look at with this kind of group. Bazemore could make some sense, but I think Ariza, he's, he's a better rotator, and given who's doing everything else in this group, that's that's where I'd go. If you have like a not like a really very much like a spacing small forward offensively for the other team, you can slide in Bazemore as a two guard, or even Kendrick Nunn as a two guard as a chaser, and then put Monk in as your small forward as a helper. Because he's a he's an okay rotator. He's worse in other elements of his game, but his physical skills aside, he, his best defensive role is probably as a helper. And it's just the fact that he's 
he'd be really small as a small forward that makes you really worry about that. So if they have any sort of on-ball or big guy that's going to abuse him as a small forward player offensively that he'd need to defend, you know, if that's the case, you can't do that. If not, throw him in there as a helper. And then you can put Bazemore or Nunn as your, as your shooting guard. This is part of the reason why, like, THT is a three worries me. If you put THT as a three and he's playing an off ball, like not not a wing scorer, he's not in a wing stopper kind of role within that lineup, he's going to be a helper because that's how the Lakers use their small forward position. And that is the worst way to use THT. So that is why, I mean, that's one of the dominoes that falls if AD is playing center full time and Gasol's out of the rotation. Is you know, Braun plays more four, Ariza's playing more four, Melo's playing four. You're going to need Bazemore, THT, or Ellington. Like, you're going to need these guys to play some small forward minutes. And defensively for THT, it seems like a really bad idea, at least given where he was this past season. All right, next question. Do you think Frank Vogel will be better tangibly? Or will be, I'm sorry. Do you think Frank Vogel being tangibly better tactically on offense is possible at all? Yes, it is possible. It's certainly possible. But every offseason, I mean, we could look at every coach and be like, yeah, you know, they're, they're going to go open their laptop or go to some coaching clinics and go find some, some good ideas and really revamp their approach. If you expect that, most years for most guys, you're going to be really disappointed. So I personally am not anticipating much uh, from a vocal standpoint. He, he kind of is who he is. My hope would be like if we see change, it's probably because someone new is brought in that has some cool ideas and then they revamp some things rather than just existing people having, you know, the, the, the light bulb going off. The team did lose three assistants, uh, to, you know, to varying degrees of responsibility, each of those three. They brought one in with Fisdale. They promoted their shooting coach to now being in a position where he's, you know, <laughs> taking on more prep work, more X's and O's, more authority. Uh, and they took another assistant, Miles Simon, from the staff. and He, he was on the staff last year, this year. He's going to be spending a significant chunk of his time running their G League team. So, as a result, they are down one person total, uh, one, one or two people, uh, and have Miles Simon taking on a second job. So, that's not a great situation, and it doesn't look like they're adding more. I haven't seen they haven't been posting jobs. We haven't seen news on them looking. And I mean, we talked to one of their lead assistant coaches this offseason, and he said that they were not planning on adding another offensive mind and that the team couldn't learn from what happened last season due to injuries. So my hopes aren't very high. Next question is, what are the odds of Vogel totally mismanaging the offensive pieces? Uh, Which he says, which in my opinion, we most clearly saw after AD went down against Phoenix and they stopped playing offense. So, I, I mean, I will admit there was some weird flailing going on in that Phoenix series. We saw basically like every lineup combo that could be tried. We saw the team find some stuff that we were hoping for, like at the beginning of the season that they found, you know, when they happened to be down 20 in a game uh, with the trapping ball screens or with like the Braun Gasol 4-5 combo that was unstoppable and was scoring like, a, you know, 1.7. It was like a 170 offensive rating or something like that in the one game. Uh, to finish game three or four, and then they didn't go back to it until they were down like 20 in the next couple games. Uh, so there were just some weird, weird things going on. They were countering post-help well, and then they just stopped. Uh, they were, I don't mean, know, there, there was a lot that they did that they just kind of threw out the window later in the series, and 
not all of it was based on injuries. So it was strange. We saw guys outside their normal roles. There were, there were you know, injuries going on, not just AD. Um, it was a bad situation. Hopefully they can turn the page from, I think, from a stability standpoint, having a third key guy in Russ makes it way easier to maintain stability if someone does go down this upcoming year. Having Rondo brought in to a, you know, in a similar way can be helpful. Uh, so them in, I think, provides a degree of like, hey, if AD does go down, if, if Russ goes down, if LeBron goes down, you still have a lot of structure you can build around and you have guys that can play their roles well and this offense can still work. So that, to me, gives me hope. And I, I think the odds of, as this person puts it, Vogel totally mismanaging the offensive pieces is relatively low. Next question, what is your biggest concern for the offense going into the season? Uh, to me, it's it's how the team manages the fact that opponents are going to be opting into every defensive tactic they can to defend the rim. Uh, plus the fact LA has some non-spacing players they'll be using, plus the fact that the team has been weak tactically on offense. If they can solve this with adding an offensive mind or or even like a silent consultant or something like that, and they can figure these, the tactical piece of this out, I feel really good about this Lakers offense. Next question, let's say THT shoots on average 34-35% from three. How does that transform the Lakers' offense and its rotation? So if he's shooting 34-35% on like a three-point shot quality where he's expected to shoot like 38-39%, that's not good. Like that's not impressive. 35% for a guy like THT who's going to be a catch-and-shoot three-point guy, he's not hitting pull-ups threes, he's not taking pull-up threes, that is not a good number. Um that's in the territory of low gravity where you can sag off of him and, and stop other players in the smart ways. What was, hang on a second, THT stats. What was his three-point percentage this past year? Okay, he shot, oh my goodness, he shot 28%. Holy crap. That's terrible. How did he shoot 28%? Shot 31% 2019 in six games. Hmm. So, I mean, eh, 35% is... I'm not looking so bad anymore. Like, that'd be a big step up, but it's still it's still not good, but it would be a, a pretty large step up. And I think that would be the type of thing that could help him get more time, certainly, and, and would be really important for his development. You need to have, as THT, in order to be the best you can be, like, obviously, you want to be good at everything, but if you can get that three-point shot to, like, average, that's huge for him. Because right now, it's really, really bad. And he's still, despite that, really effective, getting to the rim, finishing at the rim. So if he can get it to average, you know, we the the the, the roof is off on on the convertible that is THT, and and the, the ceiling is the roof, um, as Michael Jordan would put it. So, yeah, thirty four, thirty five. Again, it's all things considered, it's not going to be great given the shot quality, but it'll be a step in the right. It'll be a big step in the right direction. It'll be like seven points, seven percentage points higher than it was this past season. Because then it's, you're right on the cost. Because then if you can shoot like 37%, then like, yeah, like we're, we're cooking. Um, if you could shoot 35 this year, I'd be really happy. Even if it still is like a C minus D plus three-point shot making like underperformance, given his shot quality. Is AD starting at the five the most effective option given current roster construction? So given current roster construction, we still have that, Marcus Saul guy on the team. And if Marcus Saul is on the team, I like the idea of him getting 
two stints at center per game, five or six minutes. Same thing for Dwight. And then AD getting 24 or so center minutes per game. And then another 12 at power forward. So, I mean, in that scenario, he could start or he could not start. And either way, I mean, like, this is another... I'm going to give an answer I gave before. Starting to me doesn't really matter. It's the minutes that matter. But if he's... I mean, if Gasol's playing, I'd say no, given how I've, I've looked at how the rotation could map out. If you're trying to fit two centers in an, in the rotation in addition to AD, you want one of those centers starting the game because it just flows better. And it's again, it's not a big deal. Like, starting doesn't matter um, for, for this situation. If Gasol's off the team and they don't add a spacing big like Boogie, I do think you can put AD at the full at the five full time, um, and he could start, and that you're 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 good there. My concern with that would be AD playing like power forward minutes along with Dwight or DeAndre Jordan. That would be tough for spacing. Uh, I know I, I just noticed how I keep referencing DeAndre Jordan as if he will be joining the team. I don't know that. We'll see what happens. But assuming someone like him is signed, or it's just Dwight, AD plus a non spacing five again is not ideal for spacing. If AD's playing not so much power forward and just really more center, that's negated a good bit. And I've mapped out some some rotations that I didn't quite love, but from an AD standpoint, I was able to kind of make it work out when it comes to the big man spacing. It's just, I talked earlier about the dominoes that fall if a guy who is going to be playing a lot of power forward minutes now is playing none or almost none. You just have to slot everybody up, and given the lack of wing depth, but the amount of guards this team has, you're going to have a lot of lineups that have three guards in them, and and that could work. That can work against certain teams, certain groups. It's going to struggle against other teams in certain groups, so it might be a situational thing where Tuesday it looks great against one team, and then Thursday it doesn't look good at all versus another team just given who they have and what their roster construction looks like. So... It's really to me. It really depends on what's happening with Gasol. All right, next question. Not quite on topic, but does this team have a reliable seven or eight guys you trust to be the guys in a given playoff series? I think so. Yeah, I, I mean, Russ, Nunn, Bazemore, Ariza, Braun, AD, Dwight. That's seven right there. And then, if you want to get to eight, I'd look between THT. Maybe Monk, I mean, maybe Ellington, maybe Mello. It, it really, it's really a situational thing. Uh, you're going to need a second center. Like, AD can't be the only center, but Dwight can, you know, Dwight can have limited minutes. That can work out. I think Bazemore and Ariza are two guys that, like, unless they really are just not good this year and they can't hit their threes, their defense and their versatility defensively and their, their role versatility defensively is going to be important on a team that has a lot of guys that, like, yeah, they can shoot, they, they're not good defensively. That provides, I think, a floor to Bazemore and Ariza that is going to keep them in the rotation. And none does enough defensively and enough offensively that I see him as being safely within this group as well. And then it's just a matter of, like, what is the best fit for the series in, in, in the lineups you want to run out there. Hopefully, I mean, to me, hopefully there's there's really good competition with this group. Having Rondo, I mean, Rondo could be in this mix as well. Having those guys push each other in practices could help spark more in-season growth and improve this roster, and that, I think, would be awesome to see. Next question. Since Ellington and Monk are movement shooters that can shoot off screens, do you think the team should incorporate those shots 
as stables in the offense. I'm hoping that gravity opens up more space for AD and Dwight to roll to the rim. Yes, I love this idea. Um, especially with the team's pick and roll scoring, potentially not equaling great roll chances uh, if like teams are going under Russ ball screens. This is an easy way to generate more of those open looks for these big guys using the gravity of shooters. For example, just think about, let's say there's an empty side pin down. We'll say we're in like an elbow set. There's there's point guard at the top of the key. You've got your two bigs at the elbows, two players in the corners. We'll say 80s at the left elbow. He, he runs down and sets a screen for Wayne Ellington to run towards the ball, get the pass, and knock down threes. Like that, that is something that can work. Uh, you can see that really easily. You know, two players need to go to Ellington because he's a threat. Same thing with Monk, potentially. Although Monk's off-screen shooting hasn't been great. They've been good movement shooters, not great off-screen shooters. Or Monk hasn't. But we'll say for Ellington, he draws two guys. Russ is going to read that. Russ is going to see AD wide open. And given that you're in a horn setup, there won't be another defender right there to guard AD if he gets that pass off of like slipping that screen. Or not even slipping that screen. Set a good hard screen and then roll to the rim. That's going to be open. That's going to be buckets. So that's a way to have a good playmaker with the ball in their hands, watching a play play out, and then either getting it to the shooter for a shot or getting it to the big man for a shot. Or maybe they get it to Ellington and then he gets it to Dwight or gets it to AD. So I, I love this idea. I would love to see more of this. We should have seen more of this last year. This is a really smart, creative way to find more of those opportunities for your bigs. Next question, how much do you think THT will be featured in the offense? Most of the analysis I've heard doesn't include him as a regular rotation guy. Is it the first year of this in this is the first year of this large contract intended for development? And and he says large contract relative to the min guys. So, I don't think it's just a development year. Like you're not punting this THT year. You would love for him to be someone that can impact this this team, this offense, this defense. Defensively, again, I think he's going to have a good year. I think he's going to switch roles. Uh, that my hopes for him at the point of attack go away a little bit if we're seeing AD playing center full time and we need to start seeing THT play small forward, which again I think is kind of like the opposite situation where we see more of his bad side more often. Uh, so that I think is a a key thing for for THT and what he's doing, whether or not AD plays center or not. Um, but offensively, I think he's going to have chances. He's going to be paired with good pick-and-pop partners. He's going to have a lot of spacing around him. He is going to get a good share of pick-and-roll chances. Um, his pick-and-roll efficiency worked its way up last year, and he finished the year as like a 66th percentile pick-and-roll efficiency uh, score. So like that's pretty solid. He's got to work on the, the passing a little bit, but his playmaking uh, uh, skills and, and grades uh, for our metrics were actually really solid. So... I don't think THT's playmaking is talked about enough, partially because his shooting isn't to the point where he's manipulating defensive coverages in the way that opens up more opportunities for him to playmake. But he's got it. He like he has those skills. So if he to to the question I answered earlier, if he's able to get to like 36%, 35%, 34% on threes, and we start seeing defenses play different screen coverages against him, suddenly you're gonna be like, oh wow, THT's a really good playmaker. We didn't really get to see this last year. Uh so there, there's certainly a ceiling for this guy, and you'd love to see some of that realized this year. So I, I don't know. F- fingers crossed for THT. I'm excited about him. This roster makes more sense for him. His opportunity makes more sense than it did last year. 
I think this could be a good THD year. Which teams have the personnel to stop our attacks at the rim? Will we see them in the playoffs? So, I mean, part of this is how much LA hurts or helps themselves with non-shooters and, and the tactics and all that stuff. Uh, I think in terms of who could stop this, it's teams that have, well, so smart teams, <laughs> smart defensive teams, and then also ones that have strong rim protection, um, some switchability, some good perimeter defense. Milwaukee and Philly come to mind, both Eastern Conference teams, so that's good. Won't see them early. Uh, I mean, you go through the Western Conference, and, and there are teams that have some elements but not others. I think there are some smart defensive teams that maybe the personnel isn't perfect, but they're just going to make life harder. But I think the true tests in terms of stopping this Lakers offense aren't really coming until you would get to the finals and you see Milwaukee or Philly, if those teams make it to the finals. Brooklyn's not doing this. Although Brooklyn, shout out Brooklyn. They had like the fourth best uh, defensive rating in the playoffs last year, something like that. So they, I mean, they were a great example of how through tactics, you can make way more of a group with, with guys locked in. So effort being locked in. Um, in but, but also from an X's and O's standpoint, being more game plan driven and doing things to disrupt an offense, you can make way more out of defenders that like in the regular season, we saw they were not a good defensive team. So that is, that's scary from a Lakers perspective, being able to see a team just like pick it up like that. But it's also, you know, potentially a sign that the Lakers in the regular season, if they're not strong defensively, that doesn't mean they won't be strong defensively in the playoffs. It, it depends on how they're good or, or weak. So I've got hope there for the Lakers defense. And, and really, like, I'm sympathetic to the thought that, like, the late, like, the Lakers are better shooting. And I've heard a few people say, hey, well, no matter how good your shooting is, teams are still going to try to take away you getting to the rim. Yeah, well, maybe. If a team's truly committing to stopping the Lakers from getting to the rim and you're just getting open threes all day long and you're not, like, having a historical underperformance on threes like they did this past season, you're going to be knocking threes down left and right. Now he's going to blow teams out. The, the shooters that you have are good this year. If the combination of shooters and tactics are good enough, uh, in small ways, the defense just can't fully commit to defending the rim. And that then is going to let LeBron, AD, and Russ be themselves and look dominant. And I think that's what you need to go for. You need to have you need to be strong enough with, with that backup attack that the teams can't load up against those primary, you know, get to the rim options. All right, last question or two. We talk a lot about basketball IQ. Do you think this could be quantified as a stat? Or are there any proxies for such uh, a stat, maybe? If not, why not? So basketball IQ, this is, a, it, this is a tricky one. So it's become really a almost a black box of what fans don't understand and just want to lump it together in one thing. Because if it's, if it's decision-making or it's like processing power, if it's just how smart you are, that materializes in a bunch of different ways in basketball. And in a lot of ways, we don't really call basketball IQ. Basketball IQ, I think if I had to define it, it would be like knowing and executing the game plan well. For some guys, that can be knowing like what the other team's play is going to be as they call it out, or you know, and they know okay, they called out you know forty-two hammer. Like I know the screen is coming. Here's how we want to defend it. We're going to defend it differently than like our base defense. 
because you cover that stuff as a team. You you go through here the the, the plays the other team is going to run. Here's how we want to defend them. Like this was that was my job in the film room in college was we're playing this team. Here are their top plays. Here's how we shut them down. We're going to be prepared. Because a lot of times, you know, 80% of the time you just run your base defense. And then the other 20% of the time you want to be able to be, you know, targeted in where you draw players' attention. You can't teach them every play in the other team's playbook. But find the plays that matter most, that they're going to use the most, and and teach your guys how to shut it down. For some guys, that translates over to, to the game really well. For other guys, they, they it, the, the knowledge isn't retained as well. Or the, in the moment, they're not able to really you know, snap into what they need to be doing. So that is a piece of this, um, or like jumping a pass, you know, is coming to me. It's really, it's prep work translating into anticipation, which either gives you more time to communicate or more time to move yourself in an advantageous way. That could be of a, you know, knowing the game plan or knowing the rules really well, or knowing your team weights really well, knowing the opponent really well. That's I, most times when we see, Oh, wow, that was great basketball IQ. It's, Someone knew the rules really well. Or they knew the game plan really well. Unfortunately, I don't think this is as quantifiable given how we really track stats and what it would come down to. But it is certainly something you can spot when you're closer to teams, when you're around teams, when you're coaching, or when you're if you like if you're able to sit like courtside every game. Like these are things that you can notice. And then the very last question, you know, building off of this, if a player knows their scheme and tendencies of the opponent well, but routinely misses the correct passing reads and has like the WTF was that shot selection, does that qualify as good basketball IQ? So yes and no. It really depends on how you define it. And to me, what I think is important is to evaluate different areas separately. Like basketball IQ can't just be how smart you are about every element of basketball because there's just so many factors there and, and when it's that black box and, and for one guy it means one thing for another guy it means another thing that's that's tricky we should be able to say hey his shot selection is bad passing reads are good passing reads are bad his you know anticipation defensively in terms of like knowing the other team's tendencies is good or knowing the other team's set plays is good or bad you just have to break it down more granularly the same way I broke down like defense recently um, with that film analysis, not just saying like, oh, perimeter defense as a whole or on-ball defense as a whole or off-ball defense as a whole. Like it gets so much deeper than that. And until we start analyzing the game that way and sharing that and, and, and trying to educate on that and pointing that out and doing videos and podcasts and articles on that, the public dialogue won't shift towards that more granular part of that game part of the game and and you won't be able to like learn as much and enjoy the game as much as when you are able to see all those different moving parts so that is all for today thanks for joining us have a great rest of your day the headlines remind us daily the world is a dangerous place the elites in charge say everything's fine stop noticing but you know better and your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. 
My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com